There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear, affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. I would come in from my late night meetings and whatnot, have something to eat, have a drink, turn on the TV. Almost as soon as I turned on, I could hear Zara staring. He would jump up, come in there with his blanket. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and get on the sofa, get under my blanket. And then Megan would get up, and she would just walk in there and get under the cover and go back to sleep. But she wanted to be in it, too. <laughs> we might sit up until 4 or 5 o'clock watching movies. Yeah. Then get back up and make breakfast and watch another one. <laughs> Yeah. We've watched a, a lot of Westerns uh, together, and uh, it's been, like, something I, I think people find surprising. They're like, wait a minute, you're, you're, you're Pop, with the one with the long dreadlocks, he loves watching Westerns? And I'm like, yeah, like, out of everyone in my family, he and I love watching Westerns. Is that something that your friends find interesting, that you have such a love for Westerns? Oh, yeah, yeah. They, 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 my friends are, are fine humor in all my choice <laughs> of movies. I like Hollywood musicals, like Guys and Dolls and Cat Baloo, Little Abner. I watch those, and then I, I love Westerns. Did do you remember, uh, like, when we were in Atlanta, when you managed to get cable to the house very early and we started being able to watch all those movies, do you remember how many times you and I would watch The Electric Horseman? Yes, yes. <laughs> That's a modern Western. The Long Riders, too. Yeah. We watched The Long Riders a bunch of times. But The Electric Horseman, that one scene where they're chasing them on the horse. 
where he gets away yes. with the horse. That's like one of the best chase scenes. And, and Western's got to have a chase scene. I love, also love the image where he's like riding out of the Las Vegas casinos. He's all lit up and the horse is all lit up. And then he like they walk through the casino and like and then all of a sudden they're all the way through the casino. And then they're out on the strip <laughs> and then he's riding along. That man's like, he's got the electric suit. And then all of a sudden he turns those lights off and you're just like, oh man, like it's just all, now, now we're back to the West. It's all you hear is the horse, there's the foot, the horse's uh, yeah. hooves on the street. <laughs> I left the next morning when he wakes up and realizes he stole the horse. Because <laughs> when he stole it, he was so drunk. <laughs> he looked at it, yeah. oh no. <laughs> now now we got a fair fight. <laughs> yeah, no, I, yeah, we watched that movie almost every time it came on. <laughs> As you can hear, westerns have always been important to my pop and me. We like them for different reasons. My pop likes the moral clarity, stories of hard men performing admirably in hostile environments, people coming together and rising to the challenge of making a society. For me, I care less about the coming of civilization and prefer the stories of frontiers, people escaping old societies, charging into the wilderness, depending on themselves. I like westerns about how a person can overcome the greedy who exploit the weak and delude the easily misled. I like to see how one brave person can change everything and then rides off into the sunset. Of course, my pop and I haven't had many black cowboys to root for on the big screen or the TV screen. My favorite black cowboy in cinema is Woody Strode. He is an indomitable force. On film, Woody Strode reached back in time and corrected the record of history. He made American audiences imagine real live black cowboys riding high and proud in the saddle, men unbent by slavery, stout soldiers with iron wills, hard men tempered in the heat of the Southwest's unrelenting sun and baked desert landscape. In the mythic backdrops of John Ford's West, Woody Strode rivaled John Wayne as a towering presence, a hero for the ages. It changed everyone's view of what a black man could be in not just the Old West, but what an American who is black could demand are his rights in the 1960s and 1970s and beyond. Your favorite Woody Strode movie is The Professionals, correct? Yes, absolutely. Why do you love that one so much? Because he's a man. <laughs> he gets to be a 100% full-grown-ass man. You know, he's not anybody's sidekick. He's nobody's assistant. He's nobody's partner. He's somebody that they needed. Each person in that team was needed for the skills that they alone possessed. So he was a full member of the thing. He was a free man. There was nothing to accommodate. How bad is that horse? Not too good. No bottom. We could all do with the rest. Shape would be a relief, too. Sort of bad. No one before had seen a black man be treated as a white man's equal in a Western, just one of the crew of professionals, while he quietly demanded his dignity be recognized. But then, in The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, for that same man to save John Wayne's ass on the big screen, pulling him out of a burning house, carrying him up over his shoulders, no one before Woody Strode made American audiences reimagine how a black cowboy looks and acts. He changed everything that followed, on screen and off. That was the power of Woody Strode. The legacy of his presence in Westerns would lead directly to the badass black heroes of the urban black exploitation era of the 70s. Woody Strode walked and rode a horse so that Richard Roundtree, Jim Brown, and Fred Williamson could stick it to the man. 
There's also a direct line between Woody Strode's performance in Once Upon a Time in the West and Jamie Foxx in Django Unchained, an unbroken legacy of badass black cowboys. As we've discussed in this podcast, one in four cowboys were black. Hollywood has never really shown this historic reality to its audiences. There have, of course, been a few black cowboys in major westerns, a few beloved characters like Sheriff Black Bart in Blazing Saddles and Malachi in Silverado, but they're like raindrops compared to the oceans not shown. The great and varied truth has never been properly filmed. Since seeing is believing, it's time to discuss the cinematic black cowboys and the ways in which we imagine the West and why it's been so difficult for America to understand our present, since we don't even properly imagine our past. Yeah, this a home, it's been a long road for us. We taking ownership over everything owed to us. Royalty, we surrounded by our heritage. Our fist up, cause we proud to be American. I'm Zaren Burnett, welcome to Black Cowboys, an iHeart original podcast. What's really in the name? Sitting on a Mustang, riding through the plains. Buffalo soldier, the king of the range. We in love with the cowboy way. Chapter 9 Woody Strode and the Cinematic Black Cowboys. The bulldogger Bill Pickett was the first black cowboy to appear on celluloid. He was filmed for a number of early silent movies, but Bill was always a real life cowboy, just put on film. He wasn't acting. Soon, the medium of cinema was born, and then came the bigger-than-life cinematic cowboys, the ones who existed on film, beings of a luminous past. The first true black cowboy star was a man from Detroit, a smooth brother named Herb Jeffries. Before he became a cowboy star, he was a nightclub singer. He often tells a story about a turning point in his career. The story goes that during one of his shows, Jeffrey saw a little black child crying in an alley. The kid had been playing a game of cowboys with a bunch of white kids, but the white kids wouldn't let the black kid pretend to be a white cowboy. Jeffries says that seeing that black boy's crying face is what inspired him to go to Hollywood to make black cowboy pictures. Herb Jeffries made a series of westerns, specifically for young black boys and girls to have their own silver screen cowboy to root for as he saves his love interest and the town from villains. I don't know what his fame was like contemporaneously. By the time we started watching him, he had become like a cult figure among young progressive black people. We were looking everywhere for positive uh, examples of our greatness. He was a perfect one because he was a black cowboy movie star. <laughs> it, was like, it was like Roy Rogers, Gene Autry, Hopalong Cassidy, and Herb Jeffries. As a kid, you could like any of the cowboys, and you felt better because one of them was black. You didn't have to be Herb Jeffries. I would still be Gene Autry, but it was good that somebody could play Herb Jeffries. Half the time, the white kids would want to play him because he was so cool. NYU film professor Donald Bogle, author of Tom's Coons, Mulattoes, Mammies, and Bucks, once said that Herb Jeffries was an undeniable star, but one whose brilliance was limited by the small-mindedness of his times. Bogle told the LA Times after Jeffries passed that, quote, Herb was a sex symbol. With his wavy hair and his Clark Gable mustache, he might have been a different kind of star had America been a different kind of place. 
This is all true. In his four films, the black cowboy star stirs American imaginations, and he starts to correct the historical record. Even if his films are just silly, fun musicals, they still hint at the true past the audience never, ever gets to see. With my rope and my saddle and my horse and my gun, I'm a happy cowboy. In those first four black westerns, Herb Jeffries gave a generation of black boys and girls a noble figure to look up to, and he gave America a new dream of the Old West. In 1998, Jeffries told the LA Times, quote, Little children of dark skin, not just Negroes, but Puerto Ricans, Mexicans, everybody of color, had no heroes in the movies. I was so glad to give them something to identify with. Ah, happy cowboys. Black kids, brown kids, kids of color wouldn't have another black cowboy to look up to and to imagine themselves as, not for about another two decades, until the early 60s with the arrival of the cinematic presence known as Woody Strode. Woody Strode was a legendary figure, literally and figuratively. Figuratively, he embodies the West, particularly the Black West. Literally, he looks like some kind of black god who came to Earth to play a black cowboy. His career spanned five decades, from the early 1950s to his last film in 1993. He died the next year in 94. But before he passed, Woody Strode wrote a memoir titled Gold Dust. We had an actor read some excerpts. I developed natural strength from working out with my own body weight. I got so I could do a thousand push-ups, a thousand sit-ups, and a thousand knee squats every day. With the push-ups, I would have to rest after every hundred. The others I could do without stopping. Woody Strode isn't from the South, or from Texas, Arkansas, or Oklahoma. He was born in Los Angeles. My daddy came to Los Angeles in 1900 to escape racial pressure in Louisiana. I remember he had a trunk full of guns and 30-odd six bullets. That was based on his Southern background and fear. But you saw white people out here were different from the white people where he came from. He wanted me to fall into their path. That's why we never talked about race. Growing up in LA, Woody Strode's childhood is far different than that of his parents. He's not entirely free of racism, but it also isn't a preoccupying force in his life. At that time, most of the black people in Los Angeles lived in the Central Avenue area. Back then, it was really plush. It had the best nightclubs, after-hour spots. Central Avenue was brightly lit up, like Hollywood Boulevard would be today. And when the sun set, all the Hollywood producers and directors would come down to soak up the atmosphere. Well, you can imagine what a great place Central Avenue was. We had so much freedom compared to any other area in the country. That's how I got my liberated attitude, and I thank God for that, because it's helped me every step of the way. It would certainly help him as he becomes a standout athlete in high school, and his vistas expand as his potential futures stretch out before him, reaching in so many different directions. My senior year, I made the All-City team. I was selected captain. Based on that and my All-State in track, I got five scholarship offers. I got one from Cal, Washington, Oregon, Loyola, and UCLA. USC and Notre Dame had the best teams every year, but USC and Notre Dame didn't give black athletes a chance to play at that time. So I ended up at UCLA, and that turned out to be one of the best things that ever happened to me. 
Interestingly, it's at UCLA that Woody draws the attention of Adolf Hitler. I was contacted by Lenny Riefenstahl. She was a beautiful, intelligent German who was also a great athlete. She was famous as a filmmaker. Her film Olympia, a documentary on the 1936 Olympics, is, is possibly the greatest sports film ever made. She contacted me and asked me to meet her at this club down in the, in the Wilshire district. She had an artist with her, a little man that stood about as tall as her shoulder. <laughs> a studious looking fellow with a full beard and glasses. He wore a powder blue smock that almost touched the ground. They pulled me into a small curtained off room and I stripped off until I had nothing on but my jockey shorts. I crouched down and the little German artist walked around me, eyeballing me, tugging on his beard. Lenny Riefenstahl was standing in the corner. She said, we saw your picture and we couldn't believe it. You have the greatest physique of any athlete we've ever seen. When Hitler saw my pictures, he couldn't believe how I looked. He sent Lenny Riefenstahl back here to shoot some film on me. She said, we'd like to take you up to Carmel and film you against all that white scenery. I was ready to go, but people started whispering. Don't you know who she is? Don't you know what's happening over there in Europe? I said to myself, no, no, I can't be a part of that. Around that same time, Woody Strode is also training for the 1936 Olympics. He plans to compete in the decathlon. They trained me right up until cutoff time, but I never did go to the Olympic trials at Randall's Island, New York. The school said I needed another half unit to maintain my eligibility. So I took a shot class and I never went to the Olympics. Instead of Olympic glory, Woody Strode learns to use a bandsaw. Three years later, Woody Strode finds a different sort of national fame as part of the super-stacked 1939 UCLA football team. The headline-grabbing offense features Woody Strode, Kenny Washington, and Jackie Robinson. They are arguably the best college team in America that year, and certainly one of the greatest backfields of all time. Perhaps the most interesting fact about the 1939 UCLA Bruins stars is that all three would later become the first black athletes to play in a professional sports league in Robinson and Strode's case, after they served in the Army during World War II. Obviously, in baseball, Jackie Robinson breaks the color line in 1947 with the Brooklyn Dodgers. But one year earlier, in 1946, Kenny Washington and Woody Strode are signed to the Los Angeles Rams, becoming the first black players in the NFL. Woody Strode doesn't stay in the NFL long, though. By 1949, he becomes a professional wrestler. Woody Strode has the body for it, the mystique for it, and the sheer physicality and strength required. As Woody Strode makes more and more of a name for himself in wrestling, he's confronted with issues of how to use race to become a bigger star. Professional wrestling at the time is not the same sort of absurd caricatures and plot lines of today's WWE, although you can certainly see traces of the promotional ambitions that would lead to wrestling as we know it. Woody Strode was part native. His mother had Cherokee blood. His father had Creek blood. The wrestling promoters saw an opportunity. Mr. Bell, who owned all the racetracks in Calgary, asked me, why don't you advertise your Indian blood? I said, Mr. Bell, all of us in America, all the Negroes are mixed breeds one way or another. If I advertise I'm an Indian, the black people will figure I'm putting them down. The Indians already know. Let's just leave it at that. When I wrestled in Canada, the whole Blackfoot nation would show up at the arena. One night, the Blackfoot chief sent a young tribeswoman to my dressing room before a match. She measured my feet, my inseam, my waist, my shoulders, even my hands. She made me a deerskin outfit. They made me an honorary member of the tribe. 
Caricature or not, Woody's physical appearance leads to the big breakthrough that would shape the rest of his career. Sid Gold called me. Sid was a theatrical agent. He saw me wrestling on the tube and he said, Woody Strode, I'm a big fan. You have a look I think I could sell. Would you be interested in making some money? It's 1951. Woody Strode is 37 years old. He is in absolutely incredible shape. He stands six feet four, weighs about 215. He has a towering presence with the musculature of a Greek god on steroids. Except it's America in the 1950s, which means America isn't exactly ready for a man like Woody Strode. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. Work. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. There's a similarity between Woody Strode and The Rock. They're both wrestlers. They both become movie stars. But yet, one becomes a huge star. Are you not surprised, but do you think that in a different time, Woody Strode could have been as big as The Rock? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I I think uh, Woody Strode prepared the earth for The Rock. You know, the path he took is basically the path Woody Strode took. He was a college athlete. He got injured playing football, so he couldn't go pro football. He became a pro wrestler. Then he became a movie star. I mean, it's exactly the same path. The first Hollywood movie to truly feature Woody Strode and highlight on the big screen what he's capable of is an all-time classic, Spartacus by Stanley Kubrick, released in 1960. It's a tale of freedom, the story of a slave revolt in ancient Rome, led by a gladiator, Spartacus. During his time in the Gladiator Academy, Spartacus must fight to the death against a terrifying opponent, played by Woody Strode. Woody's a gladiator too, but he's mostly a scare tactic for the audience. He's just, quote, a big scary black man. 
But there's one moment where his actions are virtuous, inspiring. After his brutal clash with Spartacus, Strode's character decides not to kill his fellow slave and instead attacks the patricians of Rome. As you might imagine, it doesn't end well for Woody. Kill him, you imbecile. Kill him. Kill him. Kill him. But the death of Woody Strode's character becomes a spark. It sets off a slave revolt and widespread rebellion. His valiant death, a metaphor for the continuing sacrifices of black Americans still longing to be free in 1960. After his time as a gladiator for Kubrick, Woody Strode gets to portray a truly worthy cinematic icon, a black cowboy and buffalo soldier. He's offered the title role as Sergeant Rutledge, a role that explores his identity rather than leverage it for cinematic tension as, quote, a big scary black man. When I got home, John Ford was waiting for me. Anyway, we talked and finally said, I hear you're trying to be an actor. I said, well, you know, say the line, get the money. I was underplanned. He said, I've got a little thing going called Sergeant Rutledge. I want you to play a title role. I didn't get too excited because I thought he was joking. Director John Ford had done this before. Quite famously, Ford took a washed-up, injured USC football player, a kid from Iowa named Marion Morrison, and turned him into the most famous icon of the cinematic West. You know him as John Wayne. The many films the two men would make together, starting with Stagecoach in 1939, would come to be seen as the unofficial history of the American West. Beyond that, Ford almost single-handedly created the myth and visual language of the American West. He spun the dream that the West was a wild land where white men, like him, brought law and order and civilization. Ignoring the fact white men had been in the West in Spanish California long before their English cousins ever arrived in Jamestown or that civilization was present before any Europeans arrived in North America. In the early post-war period, as civil rights starts to take center stage in America, John Ford makes a series of Westerns. Ford Apache, The Quiet Man, My Darling Clementine, She Wore a Yellow Ribbon, Rio Grande, and The Searchers. The films are a kind of cinematic therapy for a nation wondering what freedom means now that the U.S. has beat the fascists but is still fighting to maintain Jim Crow in America. In Woody Strode, Ford sees a way to call out America on its racism, on his own racism. John Ford was interested in telling the story using the 9th and 10th Cavalry as the backbone. After slavery came the last of the Great Indian Wars. Around 1866, the United States built a cavalry out of former slaves, young, tall, strong Negroes who could ride horses. They were trained to think and act like Indians. They learned to fight hand-to-hand with a knife. They could use a rifle. They were led by white officers. The highest the black soldier could reach was first sergeant. And after they were trained, the government set them loose on the Indians like you would a bloodhound on a fox. You know the 9th and 10th Cavalry as the Buffalo Soldiers. It's 1959 when the film begins production, 85 years after the Buffalo Soldiers fought in the Apache Wars in the Southwest. The nation was still grappling with the aftermath of the lynching of Emmett Till. To recap the details, 14-year-old Emmett Till had been visiting family in the South when he was falsely accused of whistling at a white woman. He was then abducted from his family home in the dead of night, beaten and lynched. The white men who did it were found not guilty by an all-white jury. That moment galvanized the civil rights movement. This is the racial backdrop when John Ford makes his film about a huge Herculean black brother accused of rape and murder. 
Sergeant Rutledge is about a top sergeant in the 9th Cavalry. He's accused of murdering his post commander and raping his daughter. They catch Sergeant Rutledge at the scene of the crime. The Major and his daughter are lying dead on the floor. There's a moment early in the film where John Ford plays on the fears of white Americans. Woody Strode grabs a white woman by the face, covering her mouth with his enormous black hand as he instructs her not to scream. Don't scream, miss. Don't scream. It's a flashback scene where the jury is supposed to be imagining what really happened. And then Ford fast-forwards and shows us what happens all too often in the criminal justice system, where a prosecutor plays up the image of a big, scary black man. Well, it was, it was as though he'd sprung up at me out of the earth. I, I couldn't move. I, I couldn't scream. It was like a nightmare. And that man who sprang at you from the darkness like something from a nightmare, is he here in this court? Oh, yes, but I... Is I, that I, man I, who sees you so brutally and viciously, is he here in this courtroom? Yes, he's sitting right there. Is it there, that man there, that colored soldier? I object. I withdraw the word colored. I refer to the accused, Sergeant Rutledge. Now, in the big courtroom scene, I had the most emotional moment in my acting career. I took the stand. I felt like, like an exposed nerve, and the old man was twisting the knife. The old man, as Woody calls him, is John Ford. He had me all pissed off, emotional teetering right on the edge. I sat sat real stoic while the prosecuting attorney started to parade in front of me. This Negro raped this little girl and killed her father. If he's innocent of these crimes, then why did this nigga try to escape? And then he turned to me. Why did you come back, nigga? By then, the goose pimples were all over me and the floodgates opened. You are trying to trade your murderer's bravery for the mercy of this court, isn't that it? No, sir, that is not oh, all. Rutledge, if that isn't it, what was it? It's because the Ninth Cavalry was my home, my real freedom, and my self-respect. And the way I was deserting it, I wasn't nothing but worse than a swamp running n****. And I hate that. Do you hear me? I'm a man. To make his urgent point about racism, John Ford relies on the ugliest word in the English language. In fact, it was Strode who insisted the word be used. As he told the New York Times in 1971, quote, John Ford wanted to know if we could get away with saying n on the screen. And I said, why not? It would be the first time a black man ever called himself a n on the screen, and I wanted it to hit home. It certainly did, especially with that hard R. It still hits home today. Sergeant Rutledge comes out in 1960, and we're still very much in the civil rights era at that time. But uh, prior in the 50s, we would see signs of black men holding up, I am a man. Was that a civil rights statement when you saw that at that time? Yeah, I'm a man goes throughout African-American history. That statement is never out of context. I am a man. It's almost like the first statement of any argument black men have had to make over the years about anything. Before we get into anything, first of all, I'm a grown-ass man. So you're going to talk to me like I'm a man. You're not going to talk to me like I'm a child. Before we talk about anything, the first thing we're going to establish is that I am a man. Now, if we can't talk about that, then we can't talk about anything else. That's a recurring theme throughout African-American history. So when we see it, you would expect that to be there. Sergeant Rutledge was so strong because he said the things that were absolutely in time context that are absolutely alive now. 
Ultimately, Sergeant Rutledge is found not guilty. A white man confesses to the crime. Ford makes the white audience rethink their own biases. And Woody Strode gets to ride off into the sunset a free man. As he said in an interview before the New York Times in 1971, quote, You never seen a Negro come off a mountain like John Wayne before. I had the greatest glory hallelujah ride across the Pecos River that any black man ever had on the screen, and I did it myself. I carried the whole black race across that river. A lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The Seven from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The Seven every weekday. So follow The Seven right now. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. Work. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Sadly, John Ford's film, Sergeant Rutledge, was too far ahead of its time. The film was an uncomfortable experience for a nation wrestling with its own ideals. America didn't expect that from John Ford. Many people now have never heard of Sergeant Rutledge, even among fans of Westerns. Despite the fact the film was not a hit, it didn't sour Woody Strode and John Ford's working relationship. Two years after starring in Sergeant Rutledge, Woody Strode returns to shoot another classic John Ford Western. It's one we've mentioned before on this podcast, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. Lee Marvin is the villainous Liberty Valance, an outlaw and hired muscle for the ranchers who want the West to remain free-range for their cattle, undivided by barbed wire fences. Jimmy Stewart is a lawyer from the East who's come to the West with his law books and his ideas of polite society. John Wayne represents the hard but decent men who settled the West and must now decide how they will embrace the coming of civilization. 
Woody Strode plays John Wayne's loyal ranch hand, a character named Pompey. He's named after the ancient Roman general, a great hero of democracy, and an enemy of the tyrant Julius Caesar. It's not a starring role, but it's an honorable one. There's one scene that always stuck with me, mostly for its naive American optimism. Ford shows Strode learning to read in a class with school kids and some other semi-literate adults, all of them taught by Jimmy Stewart. As a lesson in literacy, he has Strode recite the beginning of the Declaration of Independence. Now, I wonder if anybody in class remembers what the basic law of the land is called. Now, you remember I told you that it had to be added to and changed from time to time by things called amendments. Now, does anybody remember? Oh, Julietta, your hand's always up. Here, let, let's... Pompey, you, you try this one. It was written by Mr. Thomas Jefferson of Virginia. It was written, Pompey. Written by Mr. Thomas Jefferson. And he called it the Constitution. Declaration of Independence. Uh, it begun with the words, uh, we hold these truths to be... Uh, self-evident. Let them alone, Charlie. Uh, self-evident that, uh, that... That all men are created equal. That's fine, Pompey. I knew that, Mr. Ranch, but I just plumb forgot it. Oh, that's all right, Pompey. A lot of people forget that part of it. You did just fine, Pompey. How did that scene play for you? Because I don't think there's a black character in the West who's going to forget that line of the Declaration of Independence. But John Ford wants it to be said so that the American people hear it. What were your thoughts about that? I think artistically you're correct. I don't think anybody, any black person who knew the line would have forgotten that one. Uh, but I, I thought uh, John Ford was trying to underline the point as opposed to just making it. That scene right there, just him doing that exchange with Jimmy Stewart, was almost as powerful as what he did in Sergeant Rutledge when he was on the witness stand, because you could feel the uh, emotion in him. There were members of his family when he was young who could not read. There were members of my family who could not read. You had to read to them, and when they finally figured out the words, they were as proud as if they had found a diamond <laughs> in the yard. It's a very familiar scenario in black families, especially of his age. He was born in 1914. That's only 49 years after slavery ended. You know, so there were a lot of people who couldn't read up until the 40s and the 50s. We were always reading to the old people. Go read to Aunt Sis. Go read the paper to Pop Pop. You know, that's that kind of thing. Or they would come in with, uh, with something they got from the mail. Read this for me. He was expressing all of that because that was a reading class. They were using the Declaration of Independence as the text. I thought it was a very powerful scene. John Ford makes a point that despite the nation's idealism, day-to-day -day life is mired in systemic, enduring racism. And at that same time, the American people are very much divided over whether Martin Luther King Jr. is tearing apart the nation for reminding the country of its own founding documents. Very intentionally, Ford mirrored the reality of the times, the tensions of the day. Woody Strode was a black cowboy and cinematic figure on which the battles of civil rights could be projected. One year after Malcolm X is gunned down in Harlem, Woody Strode finally gets to be a top-billed star in the movie The Professionals. Of course, he plays a trail-hardened black cowboy alongside three white cowboys. Wait, what's this? One in four cowboys is black. Look at that. Someone finally got it right. Here's how Woody Strode recalls producer Richard Brooks explaining the role to him. Woody, it's about time we show the Negro cowboy in the Old West. The script calls for a Mexican-Irish Indian, but I'm going to make him an Indian-Negro half-breed. 
Richard Brooks reached and pulled a book on cowboys from the shelf. I leaned over his desk and we went through the pictures. The Professionals came out in 1966. I played Jacob Sharp, one of the four male leads in the picture. That was the first time I ever received on-screen star billing. I got my name up there ahead of Burt Lancaster's. That same year, 1966, Strode attempts to produce his own Western film. It's called The Story of the Tenth Cavalry, about the bravery of the Buffalo Soldiers. It's meant as a historic corrective and a thrilling good time, but Strode can't find any producers willing to fund the film, so he returns to acting in other people's movies. Much like Clint Eastwood before him, Woody Strode takes his cowboy act to Europe. Italian director Sergio Leone loves Woody Strode. Leone cast him in his next movie. The black cowboy flies over to Europe to do what everyone's calling, quote, a spaghetti western. The movie's title is a nod to the grand mythos of America, Once Upon a Time in the West. It was the only picture I did with Sergio Leone. The close-ups were great. I never got a close-up in Hollywood, and Sergio framed me on screen for five minutes. After that, I said, that's all I needed. He plays a bounty hunter who hunts down white men and kills them if he has to. He's a black badass with a sawed-off Winchester rifle strapped to his thigh. It's a gun known as a mare's leg. He's not in the film long, but somehow Woody Strode makes drinking water out of his hat into a moment that film lovers still talk about. Contemporary film critic Andrew Saris zeroes in on the moment in his review for The Village Voice in 1970. He writes, quote, in the very beginning, Strode, shortly before he is to be gunned down, feels some drops of water falling on his forehead as he is framed in close-up on the fresco-like widescreen. He places his Stetson on his head so that it will receive the water between its camel-like humps, and then he shortly thereafter drinks the water from the Stetson in a gesture so ceremonial as to make the hat seem like a holy chalice. After this portentous, implacable technique, Leone leaves no way out for his characters. It is kill or be killed. Sergio Leone hates the term used for his films, spaghetti westerns. He feels it diminishes his work, marginalizes it, it makes them seem like a sideshow. He sees his work as vital and honest accounting of the West. He wants the real West to be known including the Black Cowboys. And just like John Ford, he can't understand why Hollywood hasn't made Woody Strode into a bigger star. I told him, I don't think they've quite gotten used to me coming off the mountain on a horse with John Wayne by my side. But Sergio saw what I could do, and that was enough for him. See, I was always opening doors, never knowing what I would find on the other side. hundred years from today, they'll look at all this and say, shit, man, that guy did all this stuff before anybody did anything. I never thought of it like that. I was just trying to make a living, just trying to survive in my generation. Today, the older white men see my cowboy hat and they identify with that. I don't wear boots, I wear moccasins. They see my Indian cheekbones, they accept the moccasins. This is my identity. I don't talk about what I am, I defend myself quietly. That's always the aim of Woody Strode. Quiet dignity and a steadfast demand of respect. The Reagan years were tough on Woody Strode's career. During the 80s, he didn't star in any notable films. However, to be honest, the Reagan years were tough on all black people. But then, with the coming of a new decade, arrived new opportunities for the aging black cowboy. In 1993, at the age of 79, Woody Strode enjoys a late career resurgence. He appears as the narrator for a new black western made by someone of the young generation. The movie is called Posse. 
I was super hyped to see it when it hit theaters. I was a young kid who loved westerns and was eager to see more of the history of black cowboys up on the big screen. The movie did well enough at the box office, but it's not well remembered now. It did, however, mean a lot to Woody Strode at the time, especially because there was a black man in the director's chair. When Mario Van Peebles approached Woody Strode to be the narrator for his new Western, he wanted to honor the black cowboy who'd first demanded that our history be respected. As Woody told Entertainment Weekly in 1993, quote, I still can't believe I lived to see the day when a young black man like Mario would be given money to direct this kind of movie and get to say the things he's saying, and I'm the one who gets to say it. Let me tell you, it's a real kick. In a more recent interview, Mario Van Peebles was asked about his decision to cast Woody. He told the decider, quote, Woody was almost 80, but when I called him up, because I'd seen him in Once Upon a Time in the West and Sergeant Rutledge, so he was one of the first black cowboys I saw that didn't shuffle. He stood up. He was a badass, and he got a lot of screen time. A lot of it was in spaghetti westerns, but it was always good to see him. So I called him up, and I said, I'm doing a western, and I've really enjoyed your work, and I'd love for you to take a look at the script. He said, well, uh, I'm not really doing a lot of westerns anymore. And I said, no, I understand, but... If I could just get you to take a look at a few pages, he said, all right, send it over to me. About five minutes later, he called me back. Well, when Woody called me back after reading that opening line, he said, son, are they going to let you say this? And I said, well, in this case, I am the they. And he said, well, then color me in. It was great. As the narrator for Posse, Woody Strode gets to open the film and sets the stage for a black version of the West. And frankly, it sounds a lot like the beginning of this podcast. There's one thing about time. No matter how much or how little passes, it changes things. People forget their past, and they forget the truth. But pictures don't lie. Forgotten gunslingers like Nat Love, Ice and Dart, Cherokee Bill, and troops too, like the 9th and the 10th. See, people forget that almost one out of every three cowboys was black. Because when the slaves were freed, a lot of them headed out west, built their own towns. Shit, <laughs> they didn't have much choice. In fact, over half of the original settlers of Los Angeles were black. But for some reason, we never hear their stories. The film did well at the box office, but it didn't inspire many imitators. That may be due more to the style of the film than the subject matter. As Roger Ebert said in his review of the film at the time, quote, The story needs to be told, but unfortunately, that is what director Mario Van Peebles does not do in Posse. This is an over-directed, over-photographed, overdone movie that is so distracted by its hectic, relentless style that the storyline is rendered almost incoherent. As someone who'd waited for a film like Posse ever since my pop and I first started watching westerns together and he'd told me about the black cowboys not on screen, honestly, I was more than disappointed with the movie. Two years later, Woody Strode appears posthumously in another big-budget western, The Quick and the Dead. He stars alongside Leonardo DiCaprio, Gene Hackman, Sharon Stone, and Russell Crowe. It's Woody Strode's final film. After five decades in Hollywood, he's still starring alongside some of the biggest names. Pretty damn impressive. In the film's end credits, the western is dedicated to the black cowboy. Quite some progress since Herb Jeffries. That same year, in 1995, Woody Strode receives one other cinematic nod of respect from his colleagues in Hollywood. The hero of the breakout CGI animated hit film from that year is named after Strode. Can you guess who? Whoa! Hey, whoa, 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 whoa
whoa, 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 whoa. Did I frighten you? Didn't mean to. Sorry. Howdy. My name is Woody, and this is Andy's room. That's all I Sheriff Woody say. from Toy Story. Also- Wild, right? And yet totally fitting. Not that Woody's character was black, but maybe if that same film were made today, he would be. There have been a lot of cinematic black cowboys who followed the trail of Woody Strode. In the early 60s, stars like Sidney Poitier, in the 70s, Harry Belafonte joins him, and then there were also the funny black cowboys, Cleavon Little and Richard Pryor. That same decade, it was all about the black exploitation tough guys in westerns, like former football players Fred the Hammer Williamson and Jim Brown. In the 80s, Danny Glover stars as two iconic black cowboys, one in Lonesome Dove and the other in Silverado. By the next decade, Morgan Freeman becomes an iconic black cowboy in an Academy Award-winning Clint Eastwood Western, Unforgiven. Most recently, we've seen a very different black cowboy from Jamie Foxx, who starred in a highly fictionalized world of plantation slavery as imagined by Quentin Tarantino and rendered in his ultraviolence. The climax, when the plantation explodes and Kerry Washington is safe, waiting on horseback, and she sees Jamie Foxx walk out, victorious, the plantation smoldering behind him. That moment is a catharsis I can't explain to my white friends. They can never understand how that cinematic moment feels. To see a black cowboy detonate the ultimate symbol of slavery, Tarantino called it the first Southern. And you know what? It doesn't matter that it's pure wish fulfillment. That's what movies are, fantasies. How often do you think people watch stories of like the West and think this is historically accurate and that I can treat this like almost a textbook? Do you think that that is common, that people are watching these movies expecting them to be historical? Every time. time? (laughs) I think the American public is willing to suspend disbelief at the drop of a hat. (laughs) That's always the problem, trying to get them to then believe the truth. Because they've accepted the lie so completely that now you come up, you know, uh, one-fourth to one-third of the cowboys were black. No, get out of (laughs) here. So, okay, then how do you prove it? People are not reading historical books. They're not doing a lot of the things that you would do to gain information about your culture. So the way they get that information now is to go and see Saving Private Ryan. Then that tells them what happened in World War II. They go see Apollo 13. Then they think they know NASA. You know, they see Django. They think they know slavery. And in each (laughs) of those, you you get a taste of it, but you don't know it. And then they can't discern those from the ones that are pure bullshit because they don't have the ability to judge. The cowboy becomes cemented as the spirit of America. Why do you think that is? What about the cowboy represents America so well? I think the image makers seized upon that because of the independence that is associated with cowboys, the independence, the durability, the the self-assuredness, the ability to take care of yourself. You know, what America wants the world to think about America after World War II, they wanted to think that we were like cowboys. So they seized on the Western, and they really used it to push an idea of America. That's when John Wayne became like the real American image. Can you imagine what it would be like if the American ideal of the cowboy was realistic and wide enough to include the native and black cowboys, so that way the image of the American cowboy is actually one of complexity and variety? Do you think that that was something that America if we could get behind that, would have, like, real value, or is that more of a symbolic thing? If that ever could happen, that would have tremendous real value. The truth is the only thing that replaces lies. And the truth of the matter is what you're talking about. It's telling the history as it actually happened. 
Black kids will feel better about knowing black cowboys, but all kids will feel better about knowing about black cowboys. We already like cowboys, so all we have to do is know that, you know what? We've been lied to <laughs> for 200 years by some people who are no longer here, and we are no longer tied to those old stories. So let's expose all the stories, tell the truth, and keep going forward. Actually, it's, it's a better story. You know, it's a much better story. It shows more of American backbone than the story they made up. Recently, Hollywood brought us Concrete Cowboy, starring Idris Elba. The film's set in North Philadelphia and tells the story of a group of black cowboys struggling to stay true to their way of life as civilization marches on. The film asks, how can black cowboys continue to exist in an urban modern world? The reality is that black cowboys have always existed and continue to exist, sometimes right underneath our noses for all this time. And they plan to be there in our future because they matter. You know, all we have to do is just to keep learning and keep being open to the truth, not new information, but to true information. And then once we get the true information, replace the bad shit, you know, get rid of it. Black cowboys on film seem to spark a conversation about the stories America tells itself. This is partly due to the legacy of Herb Jeffries, certainly Woody Strode, and all the cinematic black cowboys, heroes made of light beams, and thus they can shine on screen forever. Thanks for listening. Black Cowboys is written by me, Zarin Burnett. Produced and edited by Ryan Murdoch and Michelle Lands. Our theme song is written and performed by Demeanor. Original music and mixing by Jeremy Thal. Additional music by Thomas Lee. Mixed by Sid Basilet. Show logo by Lucy Quintanilla. Executive producers are Jason English and Mangesh Hatikader. Portions of this episode were reproduced from Goldust, the warm and candid memoirs of a pioneer black athlete and actor by Woody Strode and Sam Young, published by Madison Books. Follow me, Zarin Bennett, on Twitter, where my handle is Zarin3. And stay tuned for a new show from iHeart called Ridiculous Crime, co-hosted by me and writer Elizabeth Dutton. Check back here for future bonus episodes of Black Cowboys. Special thanks, as always, to my pop. Take it easy, and if you can't take it easy, take it slow. Yeah, this a home, it's been a long road for us. We taking ownership over everything owed to us. Royalty, we surrounded by our heritage. Our fist up, cause we proud to be American. Hey, ask yourself what's really in the name. Sitting on a Mustang, riding through the plains. Buffalo soldier, the king of the range. We in love with the cowboy way. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. 
And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago street course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. Work. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo. Play.